Hey, uh, welcome everybody to TLC. It's good to have all you guys here. Oh man, you guys look good. If you guys are at home joining us, we... We welcome you um, coming home. Hey, I just want to let you guys know again, those of you guys who are worshiping at home, if you're having a hard time paying attention, uh, doing service at home, we want to invite you guys out to uh, our live service every Sunday. It is available for you. There's plenty of spaces left that you can distance yourself from people. Uh, at the same time, if you feel still unsafe coming out to TLC, it's okay. Uh, we want to just give you guys the opportunity to kind of gather together in smaller groups to be able to do watch parties here and so that we can have service together. Because there's something about when the people of God gather together and listen to his word together and connect together that there's, there's this beautiful growth and maturity that begins to occur. And it's, 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 it can't be done by yourself. It just really can't. And so uh, we really want to encourage you guys for that. Okay? Hey, I am, uh, I'm a little anxious about this message I'm about to give today. I'm usually not anxious about... A lot of the messages, but this one I am a little bit anxious, so if you're out there, pray for me a little bit. Uh, we are in a series called The Line That Unites Us. The Line That Unites Us. It's a series that was developed and created with the picture in mind of, you know what, we, what we saw in our culture, and even among our, our, our Christian brethren, was this, this easiness to jump into an extreme answer, condition, whenever something comes up culturally, right? It's to kind of jump with the narrative or to kind of flow with it. And really not having this time to sit down and ask the question, what does God say about this? Right? And what we saw was that there was this consistency of, of disagreement, and yet there is this lack of, there becomes this picture of, of, of canceling each other, not wanting to talk to one another, to, to, to distance yourself from family members or distance yourself from friends who you've known for a long time simply because they disagree with you. Instead of coming together and finding a, a line that unites us, which we say is Jesus Christ, right, the scarlet thread throughout the whole entire Bible, right, instead of finding that place to build our conversation, our love, and our heart towards another, we decided it's easier and probably best 
to cut ties and to separate from one another. And so this series was developed to really uh, tackle difficult topics uh, in a way, hopefully, I pray, that uh, allows for better conversation and better community um, connection through that, right? So we've talked about what? We talked about you can disagree with one another and still at the same time bend over backwards to maintain that relationship. See, as a believer, you can, you can sharply disagree with one another, and you don't have to cancel one another. You don't have to say, well, I'm done with you if you believe that. Don't friend me. Don't Facebook me. Don't add me. Don't. You don't have to say any of that. Because as a believer, the line that unites us is the picture of Jesus Christ who dies for all sinners. And he comes and he says, look, we can disagree on how to approach a topic, but we can bend over backwards to make sure this relationship is maintained among each other. Right? And last week I talked about the picture of just sexuality in the church that's kind of a taboo conversation, homosexuality, bestiality, orgies, adultery, divorce, pornography, right? All of these pictures of sexuality that we kind of sweep under the table thinking like, you know what, I just don't want to bring it up because it's just, it seems very awkward to have this conversation about, right? And the church creates this space, this space where instead of opening up the conversation allow healing, we bring this kind of awkward kind of um, condemnation into this picture that, that, that forces people to think that I have to somehow allow, instead of letting the Holy Spirit regenerate and work in my heart, that somehow my job is to suppress and be quiet about these temptations and these feelings that I have, right? And you know, it's crazy. In the news this past week, you know, that, that, that dude that killed up, um, that shot up eight women, Right? One of, he was a pastor's kid. Oh, no, he actually, he was a Christian, I think. Right? And he joined the youth group, did all those stuff. And yet his main thing, the, the one that I saw when I was reading this, the sermon that I said, was there was this constant suppression of his temptation by the church. By the church that gave him so much angst in the thing that he was doing that led him to act out in such a horrific way. Right? So that's what I'm saying. We need to have a conversation and transparency among community in regards to sexuality, right? That there is this work that the Holy Spirit does in you for transformation. But today, today we're going to talk about life. We're going to talk about life, the fight for life. And it's a hard topic. And I can't broach this topic unless I, I give you a, 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 an image first of God's heart. Because if I broach, if I, if I breach this topic of life and abortion and, and pro-life, pro-choice, all that stuff. And I don't give you this picture of Jesus Christ and his kindness. All you're going to be hearing in this conversation is the self-condemnation in your voice, in your head, right? I, I, I want to I start this, this, this message today with, with a, an illustration that comes from the Bible, right? Because a lot of us, I think, when we, when we tend to think about Jesus, we have this mentality that Jesus is mildly always upset with us. Right? When we think about God, we think about who he is and what he's done, we have this kind of like aching self-condemnation that he's probably mildly always upset with what we're doing. Like he's, he's, he saved us, yeah, you know, he freed us, yeah, but he's, there's this mildness of, yeah, but you're, you're, you're horrible. You're a loser. You, how could you keep going? Why would you keep doing that? We have this mild feeling that he's always upset with us. And I want to, before I talk about life, I want to talk to you guys about this story. It's a story of a woman 
who was caught in adultery in the Bible. Right? So imagine this. She was caught in the act of adultery. These men came into this room where she was at with whatever that guy was that she was sleeping with, grabs her, barely probably puts on anything on her body, drags her violently out onto the street. And only her, by the way, not the dude. I don't know where the guy is. I remember last time I checked, it takes two to have adultery, right? But they didn't drag the guy. They dragged only the woman. This patriarchal society dragged only the woman out, barely clothed, violently across the street to bring her before Jesus. See, this is, this is this one thing when you sin privately and no one knows about it, and there's already shame and guilt in the privateness of your sin. And there's a whole other story when your sin is exposed to the public. And as she is being dragged down the street, imagine people peeping out their window, watching this girl as the angry mob is chanting, she is an adulteress, she was caught in the act, and this lady, for God knows what reason, was doing this, was being dragged before the foot of Jesus. And they threw her down. Old men, young men gather around Jesus in this moment, and Jesus sits there. And this woman, head bowed, full of shame, full of guilt, knowing exactly what she's done. There was no hiding, and now she was caught in the act. Knowing exactly what she has done, cannot even look up. Hearing the voices in her head of who she is, adulterer, slut, whore, unforgivable, unbelievable, right, homewrecker. In her head, and not let alone the voices of these men, these self-righteous men who screams and yells at her. Private sin becoming public. Now sitting before, on her knees, bow before a rabbi priest who apparently has the power of God. And the men in the crowd, they, they begin to say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses tells us that we must stone her. What do you say, Jesus? What do you say? And this is the, one of the crazy scenes. Jesus bends down and he starts writing. Now, what did he write? What did he write? We don't know. He could have been drawing a dragon or a unicorn. We don't really know. The only time we'll know is when... We see Jesus in heaven, okay? That's the only time we know. We can only, we can speculate what he wrote. Can you imagine how savage it would be if Jesus actually bent down and he wrote the sin, right? And he drew an arrow straight towards the person, right? And can you imagine if they're like watching and they're like, what, right? And the guy who's holding the rock was like, like moving aside. It's like, is that arrow towards me? And he writes some more and then you imagine him pointing an arrow, right? At the other person, and they're like, holy. And as, as it's coming around, everyone's like, oh, man, he, like, is this for, is he going to write my sin, right? Private sin becoming public. And Jesus says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And the Bible said what? The old men, they all dropped their stones, starting from the oldest to the youngest. Because the oldest, they, they live longer, so they realize how dumb they are, right? The young ones are the ones that think they're invisible and like, I'm, I'm self-righteous, I'm righteous, I'm, everything is good. But from the oldest to youngest, they dropped their stone and they walked away. 
And then Jesus, before this woman, who knows what she's done, completely understands what she's done, caught in the shame and the guilt of what she's done. He bends down, he holds her face, and he looks at her and says, where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? And you can imagine her. She's, just, she's hearing his voice. She's not hearing the voices of these angry men anymore. Everything is quiet. And she hears the voice of Jesus saying, I know what you've done. But where are your accusers? Is there no one that condemns you? And then he says, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus is not mildly upset about your sin, church. That if you who are saved by his blood, there's nothing that you've done or will do that is surprising to him. And he receives a broken sinner, how? With kindness. And I need need this image to be seared into your mind as we're going to talk about this issue of life. Because a lot of us, what's going to happen is that you're going to have this voice in your head, this self-condemning voice in your head that most of us keep that tells us what? That you're phony. You're fake. Everyone here, if they would know exactly what you think and how you think and what goes on in your mind, everyone would say that I am a phony and I am a fake. The self-condemnation voice that is constantly in your head, that somehow that God has made a mistake with me. I call myself a leader. I, I lead people, but I'm just a fake. I know it. I'm just a phony. God knows it, and he's always mildly upset with me. That self-condemning voice that tells you, I am just one mistake from being busted and being outed and to being shown from who I really am. That voice, that self-condemning voice in your head. I want this picture of this woman who was caught in adultery and the response that Jesus gave her to be seared in your mind because the response of a heart that's already broken From Jesus is not to break it some more. The response of a heart that is broken already from what has been done is that Jesus holds her face and says, where are your accusers? Is no one condemning you? And then no one was there. And Jesus says, then neither do I. It is met with kindness. Like who can bring a charge against you? God's elect. Who can bring a charge against those whom God has already died for? There's nothing that you have done that was a surprise to God. There's nothing that you've done that somehow like, oh, wow, I didn't see that happening. You could be outed by man. It could be shown in public. But before the eyes of God, he receives you with, does no one condemn you? Then neither do I. Right? So today, as I'm sharing this message, and if you hear a self-condemning voice, I want you to know that's not, that's not from God. Today, as you're hearing this message, and somehow in your heart of hearts, you feel like, I'm being outed. I'm, 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 I've done this. I'm a fake. I'm a phony. I want you to know, daughter of God, son of God, that's not the voice of God. He meets his people, his children, in kindness. 
from those who are humble and repents. So today we're going to talk about life, okay? We're going to talk about the issue of life. The birth of a child, the death of a child, the killing of a child. And it's a hard topic to hold, but I want you guys to hear it because I want you guys to understand it's not, I don't want us to dance around this topic. And the, thing, and the hardest thing is I don't want the narrative of the culture to tell us how to do this. I can only preach the word of God to you guys. I can't do anything else, okay? And so I can't add to it and I can't subtract from it. And we know that the word of God is the final word that, Jesus, that God gave to us in Jesus Christ. So I want to share with you what is life. So three things. We're going to talk about the image of God because you can't talk about life unless you talk about the image of God. We're going to talk about when the image begins. And then we're going to talk about, right, how as a believer we ought to respond to that in our culture today. So open your Bibles. We're going to start from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. There is a lizard in this room staring at me, right? I cannot tell if it's the devil who's trying to like, you know. Or some, right? Genesis chapter 1, it's good. I'm glad it's a lizard, not a cockroach. If it was a cockroach, it's a whole different story. I would probably be screaming. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Genesis chapter 1. Can we? Oh, my Lord. All right. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. Open your Bibles. The image of God. Let Let me share with you this picture of this image of God. Okay? If you guys have done pipeline, you know that the image of God is the first pipeline lesson you must learn before you engage in the whole pipeline because you have to know what you were made to be. You have to know who you were made in the image of, what your destiny and who you are. Okay? You have to know the creative value and worth that you have based on the word of God here. If Jesus is true and the word of God is true. This is what the Bible tells us about who we are. Chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. Check this out. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has, been, that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. What we see in this passage, right, was a break of conversation that God had in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, God said, you know, let us, uh, let us, uh, and God, God said, let there be light. And there was light, right? Let, there, let the land be filled. And he started, he started declaring things, but there's a break in narrative when it comes to the sixth day and he makes humanity And in this moment of conversation, he stops and he says, let us, let us make man in our image. We see the character of God saying, I will now create in this created order that I've already made in my image. I will create a being in my image. And they are to be upon this earth and rule as I am 
on this earth. They are to be my representative. They are going to be as me on this earth. To see man, to see humankind, to see man and woman, to see them is to see me on this place. For I who rule all heaven and earth, man rules earth as my representative. And it is unlike any of his created order, humanity. Therefore, humanity is more valuable and more worthy than anything else that has been created before it. On the sixth day, God created man and woman in his image. And this is the peak of his creation. And it was very good, he said. It was very, very good. And because he created man in his image, there is a unique and distinct relationship that man has with three different things. There's a unique and distinct relationship that man has with God. There's a unique and distinct relationship that man has with the created order. And there's a unique and distinct relationship that man has with man. Humanity has with humanity. Right? And we need to hit those three because, again, because the image of God resides in humanity, this is, there is worth, there is value, there is distinctness, there is uniqueness, there is even holiness and glory to humankind. And so what is the unique relationship with God that is not shared by any other animal in the human kingdom, in the animal kingdom, in the created order, right? Humanity has a unique relationship with God. You know how? Because I have never seen a dog that worried about eternity. I've never seen a dog that sit there and, I mean, I know you guys love your dogs. I know, like, this is, this is a very, 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 very difficult conversation right now with you guys. You're like, what? Don't bring my dog into this PT. But let me just tell you real fast, right? I have never seen a dog who sits there and ponders the uniqueness of their sin and their brokenness of what they're doing. I've never sit there and realized that there's a dog who is worried about their eternal worth value, right? I have never seen a dog figure out what do I do with my sin and my shame. Some of you guys think, well, no, no, my dog has shame, PT. When I yell at them, my dog goes, mm, like that, right? Right? Let me tell you the difference. There's a difference between shame and fear, okay? When you yell at your dog, that is feared. The dog is thinking, I can get yelled at versus my soul is a wicked thing is two different topics here, okay? My, 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 the dog is not thinking like when you yell at them, it's like, I am an evil dog, unworthy of your love, right? It's not thinking that. It's thinking, is, she's yelling at me or he's yelling at me. I'm in trouble, right? I hope I don't get beat or like, you know, I don't know what you guys do with your dogs, right? <laughs> See, humans, we seek to understand e eternality, the eternal. Animals do not. Animals don't have that concept. We alone carry the joy and the burden of seeking God. That is our unique relationship to God that is not shared by any other created beings. You guys get me? On earth. No other created beings have this unique relationship, the joy and the burden of seeking God. We also have a unique relationship with the created order around us. According to the passage, you can tell that you ain't the fastest, nor are you the strongest, but it is very clear that humanity has dominion. We have dominion 
over the creator. Mankind was made to govern the creator. Or the Bible says you are to bear fruit and multiply, to rule and subdue it. We are not the fastest, nor are we the strongest in the created order, and yet somehow we claim dominion over the order, right? We represent as God in created order. God is, again, the ruler of heaven and earth. When God says, I have made you in my image, that does not mean that somehow God gave you his character and all this stuff. That's not what the image of God means. The image of God means that I have given you a distinct identity that I have bestowed upon you simply because I have bestowed that identity upon you. My image is on you, and therefore you, as you walk this earth, you walk and you represent as I am to the things around you, to the created order around you. And so I talked about this among our brothers all the time. The first thing I always ask during a men's group is, what were you made for? What is the unique distinctness of your humanity as a man? And the answer is what? You are made to bring flourishing. You are made to rule and subdue, to, bring, to, to, to be fruitful and to multiply. That wherever you step, that place should flourish because of your presence. You have dominion over that. That you are to bring flourishing to your home, to your work, and to your church. And I've talked about this so many times. That if you were to step into the house of God, your sister should look at you and say, I'm so glad so-and-so is here. When you step foot into your home, your wife and your kids should be saying, I'm so-and-so, I'm so glad that mom and dad is, dad is home. When you step foot into your workplace, you sh- they should be saying, I'm so glad so-and-so came to work today. Because your presence brings flourishing. That's your created, unique relationship with the world around you, okay? But here's the last thing here. We have a unique and distinctive relationship with humanity, okay? So in the image of God, there's, a, there, there, there's this distinct, unique relationship with God. There's this distinct, unique, unique relationship with the created order. And there's a distinct, unique relationship with humanity. There are laws an order given by God to humanity that's not given to any other created creature. You guys know that, right? There is, re- there is truth and moral laws given to humanity that's not given to any created I've never seen the National Geographic show do something like this. Unbeknownst to the gazelle, there is a lioness seeking her prey as she stalks, as she She, apparently, I don't watch National Geographic. As she stalks her prey, right, the lioness is hungry for or excited for her next meal. And there she is. She jumps and she eats her gazelle, though the gazelle makes a violent, uh, a violent effort to run. And you don't ever see it from National Geographic. All of a sudden, the narrative breaks and says, but we have to call 911 because the lioness just murdered the gazelle, right? There is a murder that has just occurred in the African Sahara. We must call 911. We don't see that. We don't see people freaking out, like watching, oh my goodness, guys, National Geographic just saw a murder happen. We don't see that. Why? Because that law and order is not given to other, human, to other created beings. But if you were to, say, punch an old Asian woman, the whole world will be against you in less than a second. Is that not true? Is that not true? There is a rule and there is a law that governs human-to-human contact 
There's a unique and distinct relationship that is given to humanity as they govern one another. You don't see a guy or uh, in, in, in the laws of the jungle, you see two lions fighting to claim authority over that land. You don't see a man coming into another man's house and saying, you know what, I'm going to claim this home as my own, right? And then your wife will be my wife. If that happens, guess what? Homeboy's going to jail, right? Because there is laws here that goes on here. So what, I, what, what is my point here, okay? My point is, first thing is understanding this. We are made in the image of God, which means there's a uniqueness about you. There's a distinctiveness about you. There is a beauty about you that is not given to any other created being. Humanity, man and woman, was made in the image of God. Therefore, there is value, there is worth, there is distinctiveness given to you. And so the question we have to ask is, where does this image begin? When does this image begin? When is this image bestowed upon humanity? And let's go to Psalm 139. It's one of my favorite psalms. It's one of the psalms I memorized as a kid. When I was in youth, Psalm 139, verses 13. And it's poetry here, okay? But poetry has this ability to activate your imagination, to, to help you see something beyond the physical, that there is a, a world of, there's a spiritual realm that is there working, a spiritual reality that's happening here. Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. Let me read this to you guys. Psalm 39, 139, verses 13 to 16. It says this. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days adorned for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Right? What we are reading is that God is actively putting that unique, distinct, glorious, beautiful distinction of humanity together in the mother's womb. Now, listen up. Okay, I am not an idiot, you're not an idiot, okay? Idiots, right? We aren't science deniers here, you get me? We know how babies are made. We know that if we took an ultrasound into a mother's womb, we're not going to see the Holy Spirit weaving in that picture. We know that, okay? We understand that. We're not dumb here. We're not, we understand the bi- biological mechanisms that God has put in place to create, create a human baby. We understand that, but what, we, what the passage is trying to say what the Bible is arguing is, is that there is a spiritual reality behind that. Behind the biological mechanism, there's a spiritual reality that's behind that that is tied to God's sovereign reign, control, and power. This text is beautiful because if you want to know how intimate God is with you, if you want to know how close that God is wanting of you, the Bible says that when you were in your mother's womb, he wove you in the depths. That his eyes saw your unformed body before even a single day was ordained for you. Before you even lived a single moment, he put it together. 
Is there such thing as dominant genes? Of course there is. Is there such thing as recessive genes? Of course there is. Is there mom's side of the family? Of course. Is there dad's side of the family? Of course. But behind all of that that comes together, what the Bible is saying is there's a spiritual reality. There's a spiritual reality. Is God, behind all this, it's spiritual, it's, that's part of God's plan and God's glory in our lives. So when the picture and the question is asked, when was the image of God, this distinct, unique relationship that you have with God, with the created order, with humanity, when was that given to you? The Bible says that when you were in your mother's womb, he was already weaving it together. But it goes even further than that. If you go to Psalm chapter 51, Psalm chapter 51, it says that even at conception, you were put together. Psalm 51. Verse 5. Psalm 51, verse 5. <laughs> it says this. Let me get there. Psalm 51, verse 5. This is a psalm of David who speaks of this. It says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Right? And this is not, let me tell you what this does not mean, okay? This, this passage is not saying, Mom messed up. It's not saying that, you know, mom, mom like, she, 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 she left my dad, she went buck wild, and then, you know, bam, here I am, right? That's not, what, that's not what this passage is saying. It says that at conception, the moral, spiritual component of my human distinctiveness, my, the image of God, the humanness that was meant for me, right, at that very even beginning, it was already bent away from God. It was bent away from wanting God. It was bent away from denying God or seeking after him. See, if you have children, you understand this, right? right? I, I, I remember one pastor said, like, babies are like uh, vipers and diapers, right? They're, they're, they're the way they would act out violently if they don't get what they want. You guys remember Seth back in the days, right? Remember when he went, went crazy and then what did he do? He just, like, laid down and just did this movement and then, like, we just all walked away and he was just, like, still there and, like, we're thinking, like, he would get up sooner or later, but he just laid there. And remember, we would walk, like, really far. Remember when we went camping one time? He just left him, and he just wouldn't move. I, I'm thinking, dude, this, what is he doing? Like, does he want my, like, why, right? I never taught him that. I mean, I don't think Trisha taught him that. Like, no one taught him that, right? But somehow, in his wantingness to get what he wants, he decided that the only way to violently get my, the only way to express what I want, to get what I want, is to react in a very weird way. I would say, I mean, it's funny. We think about it as funny, but, you know, like, that's what I'm talking about. There's a bent towards wanting something else, right? And then, and then Enoch, oh, my gosh, Enoch, right? I mean, the thing that he wants is kind of silly because, you, you like, so like, he wants to close the door for you, right? And so... Like, you can't get mad that he wants to close the door for you. But then if you don't let him close the door for you, he freaks out. He starts crying, like, let me close the door. I mean, he's like, yeah, and he's like, door, daddy, door. I'm like, all right, go close the door, right? And what he's asking for is cute. Again, it's cute. But the way in which he wants, there's something, there's something weird about that, right? 
And what, what the Bible, what, what the psalmist is saying is that even in the beginning of conception, this uniqueness, this distinctiveness was already bent away from God. That the image of God was broken, even if even begin of that. This unique, distinct relationship between us and God, us and humanity, us and creator was already broken. And in Jeremiah chapter 1, it says, before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. So what is my point? Why am I laying all this stuff down? Because I need you guys to understand the foundation I'm going to build before I tell you guys this picture about life. The foundation is we are made in the image of God. If you're at home and you don't believe in God or you're kind of struggling with that wrestling of that, and this next few parts are going to be very difficult for you to swallow, but if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I need you guys to understand this very clearly, very distinctly, very clearly. You are made in the image of God. The creator of all the universe has declared and identified you as his specific, unique, distinct, holy creation. And if you, are, if you call him by name, and if he is your father, you are brought into the human, into, into the spiritual family, and he is your father, and you are his daughter, his son. You're made with this distinct, unique image. And therefore, the question we have to ask, this image, this image that was given to you even before conception. And so the question we need to ask now is, how are we as Christians ought to consider the culture around us as we hold on to this truth? How are we to wrestle with the culture around us as we hold on to this unbelievable, beautiful truth that every human being with an XXXY chromosome, 46 chromosomes? Yes, 46 total chromosomes, DNA, all that stuff. How is this unique, distinct human being? How are we to respond and act in regards to this sanctified life? So let me get into this question. If the Imago Dei is true, if, if the image of God is true, and we are made with this beauty in mind. And the uniqueness of the human construction is true. Then what we see now in our culture today is that we live in a day and age in a culture where we will see millions of boys and girls every year sucked limb from limb out of the wombs of their mothers and what can be rightly called as murder. Now listen, listen, before you let that voice in your head condemn you. Listen, Jesus says, neither do I. Don't, don't let the truth of God's word and the voice in your head that tells you something else clash with each other. They can be true, they can be bothly distinct. God is kind, he is wonderful. He brings his people, and at the same time, the truth is what? When we engage in the sin of abortion, what we're really doing is we're destroying a human life. A human life made in the image of God. An image that has a unique, created relationship to its God. An image that has a unique, distinctive relationship to its order. 
an image that has a unique, distinctive relationship to one another, an image that is woven together in the mother's womb, that before you were even known, before you were even there, he says, I have known you. What we see in our culture today is a demonic blindness. There's a veil that has numbed our senses. What we see today is this this dark veil that has numbed our our, our moral faculties. What we see is this, this veil that has twisted the idea of logic in our minds. We are not the first to kill our kids. Do you guys know that? The scripture tells us Back in the days, there were, there were kings who offered their babies into the hands of gods like Moloch to be burned alive in sacrifice. Spartans, the whole Greco, Greco empire, before a baby was born, would check and see if any blemishes, and if there was, would throw them down and cast them out. We were not the first to kill our babies. We were just more civilized about it. So here's what we know. And listen, guys, I want you guys to understand again. Just as the woman who was caught in adultery knew exactly what was going on, her private sin becomes public. She knew the shame and the guilt of it. And yet before the foot of of the Lord, he says, neither do I condemn you. But the truth is what? Go and sin no more. All right? At eight weeks, this is what we know. Babies in the womb suck their thumb. At eight weeks, they would recoil if you draw blood in the womb. Fetuses feels pain, right? And, and, and the most dark and demonic thing that I've kind of come to this, I couldn't wrap my head around it was I found out that France, right, in France, one of the, one of the countries that allows for late-term abortion, basically an abortion where the baby could actually survive outside of the womb in and of itself, right, a, a country that allows for that, there was a, a, a study that they found out that crabs feel pain. And so they had to figure out how to minimize, how to alleviate that pain. And I'm thinking, in a world where you are so caught up on the feelings of a crustacean, and yet you have no qualms about the feelings of a human child, there is some darkness going on there. There is some messed up logic that has moved you. When we live in a world where the sea turtle eggs are more sacred, are more sacred than the human child, the babies of, uh, in the womb of a human child. That's when you know humanity has moved towards the sense that there is a veil and there's a numbness. There is some sort of darkness that's hanging over us. Now, the argument is always, well, it's not really a baby. It's my body, Right? And you shouldn't have the right to tell me what to do with my body. I'm not going to lie to you. That's a great argument. And I can understand why the argument is made. In the culture, in, in the years, in the history of our ages, where women and children have been used and abused, have been pushed aside and cast aside, right? That any type of sexual experimentation led and was broken upon a woman's body, I can understand why there's a fight and a pushback against the so-called ridiculousness of the patriarchy, right? I completely feel it. Yet at the same time, I want to say, it's not your body. It's in your body, but it's not you. This is scientific. I'm not a science denier here, guys. It's in your body. It's not your body. At the moment of conception, according to the Bible, 
this baby, this clump of cells, bears the unique, distinct image of God. The baby has its own unique DNA, not your DNA. The moment of conception, 46 chromosomes, different DNA from mom and dad. Shares some similar DNA, but it's a unique and distinct DNA. It's not yours, it's theirs. At eight weeks, the baby has all the organs. The baby's heart is circulating in blood. It's not your heart that's circulating the blood for the baby. The baby's kidneys are filtrating the baby's blood, not your kidneys. And even the idea that the law shouldn't tell a woman what to do with her body, we know we have a lot of laws that tell you not to do with your body. You know that, right? Like you can't walk around nude. Right? You can't just like, go ahead. You can't, well, not at least in this state yet, right? You can't prostitute yourself. There's laws against that. I know that we're trying to break that law. God forbid that we ever do. But and the argument also, what about the area of incest and rape? I'm not going to lie. That's traumatic. That is traumatic. To be, to be raped by your stepfather? Traumatic. To be raped by an uncle? Right? I'm not going to try to put into perspective how that emotional process is. I'm going to let you guys understand that the bigger picture is that 1% of that, of most abortion, is because of rape and incest. The rest is about convenience. Okay? If you want me to talk about incest, I'll, I'll give you a conversation about that in a little bit. But 99% of the time, abortions given to a abortion performed is out of simple convenience. I'm not ready. I can't have this child. We're too poor. We, it's going to mess up my life. All right? This is how insane our world has got. See, if a young woman is on her way to the abortion clinic with the intention in mind, I can't have this baby. It's just too difficult for me to hold on to it. And as she is driving to the clinic and a guy who is texting on his phone hits her on the side, damaging her, hurting her, and yet also losing the baby, that guy can be brought up for involuntary manslaughter charges, and the woman could have driven two blocks and done the exact same thing and won't even be illegal. That's insanity. And this, this is the veil that I'm talking. There's a darkness that has numbed us because of a cultural narrative that we have given into. I can't... I can't pick and choose. I, I, I really, this whole week, this, this is why I'm so anxious. I, you know, every time I, I preach about a difficult conversation, I try to find the right words that connects. You guys get me? I, I really worked really hard to always find the right words that connect in a way that culturally you understand. This was the hardest message because I could not find those words. I, can, I cannot in, in any way find a way to, to alleviate or at least even lighten the picture of murder. And I, and I think it's because, and I think the fact that we even try is how we get to this place where the veil of darkness has numbed our hearts to what truth? Every human being was made in the distinct, unique, holy beauty image of God. All right? 
Now I know, listen, I know. Here it is. This is where my pushback is for all church people here, right? Because last year's conversation, the whole fight in the politic realm, and some of us are one policy voters and whatever, you know? It's like, I just cannot vote for a side that just approves abortion. Cannot, just cuts that out. And then the other side is like, just like yeah, pro-life, we got to say, here's my word. So often when the church becomes caught up in the ideologies of a political party or an ideology thing, we focus on one topic. We think pro-life is just don't kill babies, don't kill babies. Then what happens after the baby is born? Have you created a mindset of how to care for the baby's life after the baby is born? Because it's not just about keep the baby alive. What happens after the baby is born? Do you know that sometimes you give a baby into life, into a situation that's worse than death? And you cannot make the argument that somehow, oh, you know, the possibility of life gives you many things. You put a, you put a child into a position to be raised in a, in, in a realm, into a world that's worse than death itself. And yet the Christian voice is always, keep the baby alive, keep the baby alive. What about afterwards? Who's going to care for that child? Who's going to walk with that child? Who's going to ensure that child's life, strength, security? Who's going to speak truth into that child's life? You see, we can talk about a one-topic thing and not, and we lose the picture of what pro-life really is about. Because pro-life is not just about keeping a child alive. Pro-life is about caring for the weak, the broken, the sick, the foreigners. It is to ensure the life and the flourishing of those around you. That's pro-life. And here you are fighting for one topic. You fight for one ideology and you lose the whole war. Because the war is what? It's how to keep a life flourishing. Jesus came, and when he came, what did he do? He healed people. Do you know why? Because he was pro-life. He wanted to show you ought to not just leave the lame lame, but to bring flourishing to that. He brought those who were at the outskirts cast out into the city with leprosy. He brought them into a place where they were able to live and connect and have life again. Why? Because that's the heart of Christ. The line that unites us is not a policy, church. The line that unites us is not fighting and winning one ballot approval. The line that unites us is Jesus Christ saying, I want you to fight for all life. From beginning all the way to the end. Not just what suits and what's convenient for you. That's one, how we ought to respond. You guys get me? And it breaks my heart. This is how it is. It breaks my heart because I know that when and we and, and Trisha and I, we've gone through situations where we've seen young girls and young sisters who, who, who had abortions, even in spite of all those things, simply because of what the picture of shame. Picture of shame. What will my family say? What will the world think of me? What will the people around me think of me? Sometimes it's because of convenience. I can't do this. I can't raise a kid by myself. I'm, I'm just a young girl. What can I do? It breaks my heart because 
the church, the community of God, the people of God. We ought to create a place where transparency is so clear and so wonderful that if such a thing happens, the first thing that a young girl or even a brother who, who either funded, pushed for it, or even forced on it, that a young brother or young sister who has that mindset should know my church will take care of me. I will have someone there to be with me along the way. That even if my mom and dad kicks me out of the house in total shame, the house that bears God's name, my brothers and sisters will bring me in. That should be their number one reaction rather than thinking, oh my goodness, my church is going to find out I slept with a guy before marriage. What would they think of me? If that is the mindset that we have created among the young sisters, even our brothers, we have failed completely to be a church. Do you understand? We have failed unbelievably. I'm not saying that we condone what would happen. And I'm not saying that it's going to be easy, that your life is going to have no consequences here. But I want you to know that if anything, we will raise your kid. We will raise the kid as if it was our own. There's a scene in um, Le Miserable that I love so much. It was um, Fantine was about to die, right? She was about to die. And, and she didn't know what to do because her baby was being um, held by some, um, uh, some dudes, a, a family that was destroying her, her kid. And she was, she was about to die. And then she looked at um, Jean Valjean and she says, can I give my daughter into your hand? And the line he said was amazing. He said, your daughter will want for nothing. She will be as my own. If only the heart of the church remembers that our Lord Jesus said the exact same thing. Through Jesus Christ, they will want for nothing, for I will bring them into my home. They will be mine. And so how foolish is it of us in the reverse story to exclude and push away sisters, brothers, who have fallen into this place rather than saying your child will want for nothing because that kid will be as if it's my kid. See, one, one, we got to stop playing politics with this whole pro-life thing. When we think about pro-life, you got to think about every life, the sick, the hurting, the orphans, the foreigners, all life. But two, you got to think about the community we're trying to build here. If it's a community built on shame, no one's ever going to say anything. See, what we need is we need mothers who are transparent and women who are willing to come alongside younger women and to say, you do not need to worry. I am for you, not against you. We need brothers who will come alongside brothers and say, you messed up but I'm for you, not against you. We're going to do this together. All right? All this means is that we are called, guys, if we believe in the Imago Dei, that every human is made in the image of God, the sick, the poor, the homeless, the aged, the refugee, the inmate, right? We are called 
here to increase our love. That's all it is. See, church has become this, this institution of formalities and no longer the body that cares for those who are desperately in need. And I share with you this story over and over that in the old days when in the Roman Empire they would cast out young girls because they didn't want girls because girls cannot carry on the family name. They would cast these, these young babies out. And then in the middle of the night, you will see young Christians walking around listening to the cries of these wailing child children. They'll pick these kids up, bring them to the homes of more affluent Christians to raise as their own kids. We need a heart of brothers and sisters who will stop jumping to the conclusion of shame and embracing as Jesus did to the adulterous woman. Where are your accusers? Let me bring you to the one that has loved you from the beginning of time. They're not here. I do not accuse you either. I do not accuse you either. But there needs to be transparency in our conversations. We need to create an atmosphere where this is real. Not just going through the formalities of of, of, of the things we do, but not the formality of Christian religion, but actually the, the, the truth of the Christian relationship. That if Jesus was to bring us into his home, God brought us into his family at the cost of his son. And who are we to sit, to point? We are called to be in a place where we bring our sisters and our brothers back. So if you find yourself in that place when you've kept it a secret, held it in, I'm not going to lie to you. There's probably a lot of shame and guilt that you've carried for the years, and you shouldn't carry that guilt. You know that? You should not be carrying that guilt alone. And if you have, I'm sorry. It's the church's fault for creating that atmosphere of shame for you to create an atmosphere of fingers for you, I want you to know, right? I want you to know there is no one here that accuses you. There is no way that I can point a finger at you and not have that same finger being pointed back at me. Church, humanity was made in the image of God. We are called to fight for life to embrace it, not just to give lip service to it, but to embrace it and to do everything we can to ensure that the life that will be born will flourish and prosper under our care. I can't change the world around me too far out, but I can change one area at a time. We can change one area at a time. I I can't fathom how to change the whole political system but we can change one community area at a time. You guys follow? That we would just embrace one family at a time, one sister at a time, one brother at a time. And you've done your duty. So my prayer is this. If you find yourself in that place, I want you to know there is no condemnation here. If Christ does not condemn you, There is no way I will have the guts to even try. 
And anyone, if anyone condemns you here, right, they have not, they have not, they've missed the whole picture of who Jesus Christ is. But two, everyone else, we need to create a space, a home for this. You need to dig deep, figure out where God has hidden you, and you need to pray to God, would you increase my love? Because that's the biggest problem. Our love is so small. Our love is so limited. Our love is only what is convenient for us. And you need to dig deep down and say, God, give me the heart to love as you have loved. You guys got it? Let's pray.